Small Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J., and I'm here with Dr. Matt Norman, forensic psychiatrist in Atlanta, Georgia. And we are going to talk about the nuts and bolts of the law with regard to insanity, mental health issues, and really figure out, you know, what's the state of it now and where we're going. So welcome. Thank you for having me, B.J. So let's... Go ahead and dive into the categories that are in most states, and we'll talk about the two that are a little different from the rest of the country as well. But you hear that folks can are want to be declared insane or that they are not guilty, as in not guilty by reason of insanity, or the alternative guilty but mentally ill, or there's just a rejection of any men- mental health defense and the person is considered not insane. Then you have another category of competency to stand trial, that you're competent or incompetent. And those are words that we hear on the nightly news and read in magazines, but I don't think we always understand them. And what we're learning now with what's happened in Florida and everywhere else with regard to mental health issues, that it's incumbent on all of us to at least understand the rudimentary things to look for, for protection of society and protection of the individual and safety for all. So we're going to dive in there and I'll let you start with the legal requirements for not guilty by reason of insanity. Sure. So in order to be deemed not guilty by reason of insanity, every jurisdiction, either a state or the federal government, has their own test, uh, a legal test to determine do they meet this test or not? And then oftentimes a forensic psychiatrist or forensic psychologist gets called to do an evaluation and determine, in their opinion, do they meet the test or not? But ultimately, it's up to what uh, I understand as a forensic psychiatrist is called the trier of fact, which is either the judge or the jury. And the test goes all the way back to 18, for us in the United States, we heavily rely on a test from the middle of the 19th century, 1843. And that was Daniel McNaughton in England who attempted to shoot and kill the prime minister, but uh, actually the person that stepped out of the carriage was the prime minister's assistant. And that individual, Roger Peel, ultimately died of his wounds. What's an interesting side fact is Peel may not have died, and it may not have been an assassination, but for the potential medical malpractice. The two physicians decided they were treating Peel. The best thing to do was to bleed him to try to treat his wounds. And ultimately, he died from being bled to death. But McNaughton was charged, and ultimately then we have a test that came out of that case that often is called the McNaughton test. And the McNaughton rule, what is it? the McNaughton rule is, is if the individual did not know the difference between right and wrong at the time of the act, and then some states say what has to be due to a mental disease or defect, some states do not, the person did not know right from wrong, then they should not be held criminally responsible, which we then call the insanity defense. And if you are successful with the insanity defense, does that mean you're just going home and back watching YouTube on your couch? Or? No, it actually is 
Quite the opposite. It's an indefinite sentence in most states. In that, what happens is the person goes to a state psychiatric hospital. They are committed to that state psychiatric hospital, and then once a year, they have an option of trying to apply and see if they can get out. And they have to prove that their their illness is in remission and they're not a danger to themselves or anyone else in order to get out. And the statistics are that. Most people spend more time in the state psychiatric hospital under lock and key than they would if they had been convicted at trial and gone to prison. The difference is they're in a state hospital and they're not in prison. The length of the quote-unquote sentence, if you want to call it a sentence, of being in the institution is usually longer. Uh, the only exception to that is murder. And there, can, there has been and there's been documentation of abuse of that length of time um, in terms of not really either getting the right treatment because the facility can't really take care of it or that the condition of the, of the defendant has changed. You know, they've aged, they're older, the same things that were happening before may not be happening later, and yet they're spending their life in a psychiatric facility. Yes, and because the burden shifts to that defendant, it becomes difficult oftentimes for them to get out. They have to actually prove to the judge that they're fine, and that burden can be difficult for them. And oftentimes the doctors and the clinicians that are working at that state psychiatric hospital may not support them getting out. They obviously have a goal of trying to transition them back to the community. And in fact, it's, it's quite rare. It's not something that's commonly utilized in the United States, like many people think. If you watch Law & Order, you may think that insanities everyday occurrence, and it's not. And you mentioned there's another test out there, another standard besides the McNaughton test in terms of insanity. So the other case that we often refer to and think about is the case of John Hinckley, because Hinckley turned insanity on its head. In March of 1981, he attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan, the president, newly sworn in president from the 1980 election as he emerged from giving a speech. And John Hinckley was examined and presented as a defense, the not guilty by reason of insanity, and was found and deemed not guilty by reason of insanity. And that was an uproar. It was a major uproar. And one of the things they looked at was, one, it was a contested insanity case and that not everybody agreed that he met the test. Two, the test was easier for someone to, quote unquote, be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that an individual defendant, if they said or had a defense attorney presented a report from a forensic psychiatrist or psychologist that said this person met the test, uh, then it was the prosecution's burden to prove that they were sane. And that is still the test in a few states, but most states said, nope, we're not going to do this. The federal government said we're not going to do this. We're going to put the burden back on the defense and make them prove that the person was insane at the time. So it makes it a lot more difficult and a lot rarer than it was before. So what about the category of guilty but mentally ill in contrast to insanity? So guilty but mentally ill was an offshoot of uh, the reform that came out of John Hinckley's case mm -hmm. uh, because it was one of these issues that people said, well, wait a minute, if insanity is going to be that rare, what, what about those people that do have a mental illness and they're now not going to meet the test? Shouldn't we put them in a different category? And so the way I understand it is a lot of legislatures around the country said, well, we'll create this new category. I think it was to appease some of the uh, defense attorneys and they called it guilty but mentally ill. And so people can plea 
guilty but mentally ill or be found guilty but mentally ill, you still go to prison instead of the state hospital, and then you're deemed mentally ill. And I know you and I have talked about this. The statistics show that those folks do serve a larger portion of their sentence than if they pled straight up guilty. So if you're deemed guilty but mentally ill, and certainly in the state of Georgia, pardons and paroles, when they're looking at whether you should get parole, say, well, now wait a minute. Between two defendants, if one guy's just straight up guilty and another individual is guilty but mentally ill, I want to let the person that's just straight up guilty out because the person that's guilty but mentally ill may reoffend. And statistically, they've looked at it. They serve a greater percentage of their sentence. So although the intention was to offer some consolation to something that's not quite insanity, but it's not as bad as guilty, it turns out to be worse for most defendants than straight up guilty. What other or is there any other way that in terms of the pleas, the formal pleas in court that you've seen or worked with any other vehicle to be able to raise mental health issues so that the goal would be like someone is guilty of something, but they really need help. You know, is there that marriage out there really between knowing that they did it, but knowing that but for this illness that they didn't choose to have, they get help to at least improve some, or is that just not there? So it's it's there if the individual has a good attorney like yourself and is able to get that argued either at sentencing, so it can be mitigation in the federal court system. There can be diminished capacity, so it can help with sentencing, reducing uh, their sentence. My understanding as a forensic psychiatrist is there's a point system and sentencing guidelines, and diminished capacity can reduce uh, the points the person gets and therefore help uh, lessen the sentence for that individual. In some state courts, it's simply having the forensic psychiatrist or some mental health professional come in and try to explain to the court why the person may have engaged in that behavior. It's not excusing it. It's not absolving them of responsibility, but it's explanatory. And then some depends on the judge, depends on the defense attorney and their skill. Uh, Sometimes that can work out to help get the person the help they need or reduce their sentence because it helps to explain what happened. In general, in the prison system, in your experience, are you seeing much treatment for folks who clearly have some sort of mental so illness? The treatment is what I say is minimally adequate. It is adequate, but it's not the same as treatment in the community. And by that, I mean that if someone needs a medication, for example, if they have schizophrenia and they need an antipsychotic medication, they're going to get it when they're in the prison. And if they're depressed and they need an antidepressant, they're going to get that medication. Are they going to get weekly counseling sessions where they explore why they may have behaved the way they did? Uh, At some prisons, you may get a little counseling once a month. You're not going to get weekly counseling like you can get in the community. So it's not the same as what you can get in the community. Are you... You mentioned two things, schizophrenia and bipolar, and there seems to be a lot of the illnesses that reach the court system. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit about that collision between those two and perhaps any other particular diagnoses that seem to be a fast track to criminal prosecution and, and, and incarceration? Yes, because schizophrenia is a an illness that affects the way an individual thinks. It, it oftentimes makes them have hallucinations. They hear voices that other people don't hear. Uh, They may believe people are after them, have delusions. 
And that affects 1% of the population worldwide. doesn't matter whether you live in the United States. doesn't matter whether you live in some other country halfway around the world. And that illness, because of those hallucinations and delusions, oftentimes can lend that person. It's hard for them to keep a job, hard for them to keep relationships, hard for them to keep housing because they don't oftentimes have an occupation. And then oftentimes they'll end up interacting with criminal justice system. Uh, because there's what we call a downward drift socially. Bipolar, same thing. In its extreme forms, about 1%, 1.1% of the population. These individuals can have behavior that's troublesome. During a manic episode, someone can behave in a way that they would not behave if they did not have that episode. Can, can you kind of describe that a little more? Because the word bipolar is used a lot, it, you know, and sometimes – almost in film and everything else, and it's almost become a vernacular. But it really represents something more than, I think, how we've kind of watered it down. Can you kind of give us an idea of what that really looks like and what the symptoms are? Yes, and I like that term vernacular. I call it diagnosis du jour, I guess. <laughs> it, um, bipolar it literally means two poles, bipole. So it is a renaming of the old manic depression, which means an individual swings in their moods from a depressed state, that is, they have no pleasure, can't feel pleasure, uh, feel down, sad, blue, and potentially suicidal, to the flip or the opposite, which we call mania or a manic episode, where they feel on top of the world, feel like they have special powers. Uh, they may go out and spend a bunch of money and engage in relationships and behavior that they wouldn't otherwise do. Now, how it's gotten watered down is we have these two poles, but if you really look at it, that's 1% of the population, and the criteria that that manic phase has to – this shifting in moods is not like light switch. Uh, a person with true bipolar may only have three or four episodes a year, not three or four episodes a week. And I think how we've watered it down is we've learned about bipolar, and then someone goes, oh, you're bipolar, because their moods fluctuate. Our moods fluctuate day-to-day, hour-to-hour, depending on what's going on in our lives – but someone with true bipolar, that really is something that occurs. It's a very extreme form and only happens three or four times a year. So in talking to judges, that may explain sometimes the fatigue that we hear from judges, like how many people come before me and they're diagnosed bipolar or all these people truly bipolar. And then they have some skepticism about accepting that mental health component as part of what should happen in the courts. Is that fair to say? Yes. And that is what I have seen happen is it gets brought up so often uh, that it does seem to water it down for prosecutors in the courts. And that's unfortunate because it is an illness that's real and it's in its extreme form. And it absolutely has a negative impact on someone's behavior. We, in our common everyday language, start using it and throwing it around mm. and it is going to water it down. What about, you know, you add to the fact that someone with schizophrenia, someone with true bipolar, or even this whatever we're calling it now, where there are phases and the moods there, and we add the component of alcohol or drugs. It increases certainly the number of people who are in front of a judge, one, because the drugs may be illegal or probably are illegal. But even more than that, it, it, it enhances the type of behavior, the asocial behavior or the violent behavior that's fueled further by taking drugs or, or the alcohol that's being consumed, right? Yes. And one of the troubles in that is it, it's a what I call a chicken and an egg phenomenon, which came first, uh, because there are people that will take 
alcohol or drugs, and then they look like they have mood swings. But and they're some, self-medicating but they're, for something real. They're self-medicating for something real. Now, on the flip side, there's some people that they're bipolar first, and then they start taking the alcohol and the drugs to self-medicate. And there's some people that have alcohol and drugs, and then someone will call them bipolar. But if you got rid of the alcohol and the drugs, you would say, hey, this person's not bipolar. They just need to get, and they knew, they need to get services to ensure that they don't use the alcohol and the drugs. I want to shift a little bit where you're treating someone, as opposed to in the forensic where you're testifying in court, where you're dealing with family members. Because, you know, it's always, it's not really in my family. I and mean, there's something about the stigma of mental health that we just don't, we deny it when it's right in front of us, even the person we love the most or our child. And sometimes I know in criminal defense, I talk with the child first, they've gotten in trouble. I kind of get a feel for what's going on. Then I meet mom and dad. Then I go back to the child before I tell mom and dad what I think is going on because I can't just repeat things. But there's this complete denial on part of the parents that their child's struggling and that the struggle with drugs is about something else and may have mental health roots. Do you have any ideas of you know how that plays out in the real world in your practice or ways that we can help parents see it in their own children before it reaches that point of your dealing with the court system? Yes, it, it is something that none of us like to acknowledge that there's dirty laundry in the basket. Social media for much of us, for many people, is about showing the positive face of what life looks like. And oftentimes we internally do the same thing because it's difficult. It's difficult to think about having struggles uh, and usually then means that we have to do something about it. Uh, we have to – we can hear the uh, – a little rattle underneath our automobile when we're driving down the road and uh, I don't want to take this in. I don't want to deal with this. It's going to cost money. Something's going to be wrong with it. I don't know what I'm going to get told. Are they going to be trustworthy? We can think the same thing with mental health. They, the parents can hear the rattle and then they go, this is going to be costly. I don't know whether I can trust somebody. I don't know whether there's science behind it. I think we move forward or have moved forward and that there's less stigma now. But a lot of people that are parents now grew up in a generation where their parents said, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You don't need help, right? You just got to behave right. And so hopefully what happens generationally over time is we see changes I think the recommendation is you, if you hear the rattle, you got to go get it checked out by the proper mechanic. Or you see it on Instagram. I mean, because that's the other thing that's happening now. We got, we've got we got photographs. You can say what you want about social media and it gets crazy. But some of the things that are said on social media are really a sign that something's really wrong. I mean, in, every, in, these, in the shooting cases, we're going back and you look at the social media and you're like, oh, my gosh, who, who was seeing this? And, and anybody can look at it and say you're headed in the wrong direction without being in your position or uh, being a psychiatrist. Absolutely. I think there are, there are social media accounts out there and you can, you can look and you can quickly determine this is something that needs attention. And is the answer that the parents need to look at the social media or as a community? I, I go back to uh, thinking and I, you know, I certainly didn't live then, but during colonial times in America – uh, the psychiatric hospitals really didn't exist. What happened was communities took care of their own, and that's what they did. Uh, if there was someone with a mental health issue within the community, the community dealt with it. And I think our definition of community has changed in the couple hundred years since that time, and we don't think about our neighbors as much. We don't think about our friends in the same way. And how do you define a community? If you live in a city of a couple million people, is that 
Is that your community or is your community only the people that live within a couple block radius of you? And I think we have to figure out what defines community and then we have to take care of those in our community. And yet at the same time, we have to balance, you know, we have our individual rights to be who we are and how, when, when is it an invasion too far? And then go back to that scenario that historically in the psychiatric world, there were people who were, they're just locked up forever and forgotten and that that's not right either. That's right. And we do have to find that balance. And, and in the 1950s, you would go to a state psychiatric hospital and you may never leave. And that's not right. On the flip side, it it shouldn't be impossible for a law enforcement officer or a family member who sees somebody suffering to be able to get them the help they need. And oftentimes what they're told is, well, there's nothing legally we can do. We can't. They're not saying they're suicidal. They're not saying they're going to hurt anybody. So we can't do anything. And I I get that those personal rights. I, I appreciate those. But somewhere in there, there's the, you know, we have to decide what we, we as a community need to do to be able to make sure people get help. There's also, there are different groups where they run in terms, different types of people who run into law enforcement. And I'm thinking in particular that over the last few years, I've encountered clients who are autistic and then they deal with the police. And the police, again, Again, they have a heavy job and knowing and diagnosing and, and knowing that what it seems to be unusual behavior or strange behavior isn't disrespect um, or necessarily something that the person can control, that the way they communicate is different. They may not look you in the eye. They And, and not looking the officer in the eye may be perceived as you are lying about something or hiding something, and it may be you know, you're autistic and you're dealing with the police. Is there anything that you're seeing in your work and in the psychiatry field to help try to deal when autism meets the criminal justice system? One thing that's been an offshoot of the last 20 or 30 years is what they call CIT, crisis intervention training, which is training for law enforcement officers in mental health. Now, you can say, wait a minute, this is a police officer. Why do they need mental health training? Well, because we have made them the frontline mental health workers. We have forced these interactions, including those people with autism spectrum illnesses, onto law enforcement. So there are training programs. Uh, CIT came out of Memphis and the Memphis Police Department. It's been replicated around the country. Many, many officers, some departments require all officers to get it. Some departments want 10 percent of their officers CIT trained. But the idea is that there's at least an officer somewhere out there that's working that shift that can go and know how to look for the signs. And if officer that doesn't have the training goes, well, maybe we should call the other officer who does have the CIT training. And the hope is that then the interaction will be different than having a bunch of officers that don't have that training. It's unfair to the officers to expect them to know our diagnostic and statistical manual and all the illnesses that are in there. So we can give them some training to hope that that interaction works better. It literally is having them get the training and us as psychiatrists and mental health ensuring that they have the opportunity to have that training. Is there anything else that just in the perfect world, if you could in the next five years, see a sea change in some area of psychiatry in the courts that you really feel like we should be looking at or our legislators, our elected officials should be looking at and understanding um, to try to make society better? I think we may be moving somewhat in the right direction, but we need to continue to do that. There are more mental health courts. There are substance abuse diversion courts. So there may be somebody that has a mental health issue that ends up in the criminal justice system 
And we previously had laws that said, hey, we're going to lock them up for 20 years for this bag of marijuana or whatever it was. And, and now it may be this person just needs treatment. And with treatment, they can be a productive member of society. And then, they're, one, they're not a cost burden to the rest of society. And two, that person can enjoy the life that they have and, and the freedoms that they deserve. So if there's something the legislature should do, it's ensure that we are addressing the opioid crisis, that we're addressing the mental health crisis. And the way to do that is to ensure that treatment and funding is available, that folks get the help they need. And that costs us all less in the end. I think in the end, it costs us all less. I think what we worry about is, wow, this is going to cost a fortune. But to lock people up costs a fair amount of money. And, and, it, and it, its costs are not just monetary. Its costs are emotional on the family. Its costs are emotional on the individual that's locked up. It's not an easy solution. Thank you so much. Um, I hope all of us had a really, perhaps you learned something new today about, you know, this very, very, very serious issue about mental health and our justice system. It is one of our most major crises that we're dealing as a society and that you'll take a moment when you meet with friends or family or you see something that doesn't feel right or seem right, it may not be right. And is there a place that you can get them to or guide them to or even have a talk with their parent to say, you know, I noticed this. Um, sometimes people will push back, but other times they may not um, because the justice system, it, it wasn't built for all of this and we've got to make it better. So thank you for your part in it. Thank you for having me, PJ. And we've been sitting here on Law Talk with BJ with our obligatory cup of tea. Today is cinnamon tea in the hope that life will be sweeter and will be kinder. And that may not have direct route to cinnamon, but I'm stretching it. But it is good to have a cup of tea with a friend and listen to them. And maybe when you're sitting with them and listening to them and getting to know them, you may find out that they are in a little trouble and you may choose to help. Thank you for listening to Law Talk with BJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast, copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire.